0: Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories. And I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. We're talking today about Nightmare Alley, the new film from Guillermo del Toro. And this is a special two-part conversation. In the second part, I sit down with the film sound team to discuss the sound edit, the design, and the mix on this really extraordinary film. But first, I got the opportunity recently to sit down with Guillermo del Toro himself in person, one-on-one, at the Dolby Screening Room in Hollywood, California. And we had a really fun conversation about his background, uh, his influences as a filmmaker, his philosophy about sound and music, and how he approached the unique challenges of Nightmare Alley. Guillermo del Toro is uh, somebody that should not be a stranger to you at all. He's well known, of course, for Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, The Shape of Water, for which he won two Academy Awards for Best Director and also for Best Picture. So it was just an unbelievable pleasure to be able to sit down with Guillermo and have a a really great conversation about this film. I hope you enjoy it. Guillermo, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to talk with us today.
1: Absolutely a pleasure, man.
0: You are so well-regarded as a creative artist, a writer. I'm curious to kind of how you got started. How did you find the cinema and movies as your form of creative expression? Like, why this particular art form for you?
1: Well, I started as a very, very young kid. Uh, At eight, I was doing super eights. My dad had a camera, and I just started using it. I didn't really know uh, much. I mean, I watched a lot of movies even at eight, uh, but I didn't know how they were made. And I, I started shooting, and then it came back. The reel came back from the pharmacy, like three weeks later, and I projected it because my dad had a projector and everything. And I was—it's still the best projection. In, my professional life because i went "Ah," it was an out-of-body experience i said i did that i did i made a movie and that's a movie and i made it and it was like a dislocation of the world and uh, since then i stayed uh, super 8 then 16 35 shorts and then tv and then uh, features your films uh, have such
0: remarkable sound design, and you use sound in such a creative way to tell your story. I'm curious how you developed that skill. How did you, where did you learn about sound? Were there some early films that kind of inspired you in terms of the way they use sound? And where did you because a lot of directors don't necessarily know how to use sound creatively for storytelling. How did you learn that?
1: Well, Super Eight had two tracks, right? And you you were able, and so I had to do all the folly live. So I started doing all my folly, like at the door of a car would be a cassette uh, case. And uh, we still, in this movie, we use a trick I learned from, uh, I had a, I became friendly with the folly guys in the studio in Mexico, and they taught me a few tricks. One of them we use the nightmare alley, which is how do you do, I don't have a paper, but you put a paper for a flapping of a bird wing, you put a paper on your pocket and you go, and it, it sounds exactly like, and we use it when he bites the chicken. That's me, you know. And and uh, doing all those that, that sounded, having just two tracks, I learned to divide them. Then I got a little mixer for my Super 8, by Canon projector, and I had four tracks, and that became like yeah, you know, super production. And then uh, I cut my films on 16, and I had to assemble. I remember back then we had six tracks that you could do. Then, if you went to the big studio, and I had to assemble the, the lead, the leader, or the discarded negative, and assemble it for the magnetic uh, patches, assemble the foley, so I assembled everything by hand, myself. I had no money for uh, an editing staff. I had a, an assistant editor working with me. And uh, then I learned how to distribute the sound. In Mexico, we used to <laughs> joke, say we, we don't have Dolly, we have doubly, meaning there's one speaker here, one speaker there, that's it. And but I learned how, how to use them, and then when I, the more channels you give me, the more I can make the experience immersive. Because that is about, uh, if you have surround channels, then you, you can clean the center for some instruments and send some instruments and the music to the sides some, not all, not not indiscriminately. And then you can do what I call with Atmos, you can do the fishbowl approach, which is you are immersing an audience in a tank full of sound. You, and you don't do really pointed, somebody yelling in the back, but you can make the atmospheres. For example, uh, in the Geek Show on Nightmare Alley, you can start in the center and slowly leak a low frequency to the sides uh, et cetera, et cetera. You, if you have wind, you can look, localize it beautifully. And uh, then it's a matter of um, meeting with the sound designer and really knowing the tracks. You have to really, really know the tracks. And you, said, you have to say, do you remember that one you caught where it was a high frequency and not a low frequency and maybe we can do this or that? Uh, you know, Back in the days when, when I worked on the console, um, in 16 millimeter. What you had to do, I don't know if you guys went that back, but you had to have all the faders in the exact position, because they, was not, they had no memory, you had all the faders, and then you patched in. And either you nailed it or you didn't. And I remember the mixer was a guy called Ceron, and, and he would hold one, one, one uh, slider on each finger. And he would ride them, and he would say, "You take those two; I'll take the others." And he would slide and say, "Now, now, and bam!" And you could patch it, but you have to do it by hand. So the best thing uh, to know about how to build a house is to build a house.
0: That's a great way to put it. I remember you—you you telling you telling that story just reminds me of. I remember I used to work with Ben Burt and he told me about, on the first Star Wars, This blew my mind that they couldn't punch in. So every 10-minute reel was a continuous take.
1: That was, they, they could not punch in.
0: You'd get down to like nine minutes into the reel and people would just start sweating. Sweating. From, because they didn't want to blow it at the last, at the last. They,
1: uh, and they had more tracks. I mean, and then you pay attention to the evolution of that with Walter Merch and Ben. You know, all these guys knew what they were doing in terms of storytelling. It was not just, you know, when I was, <laughs> I remember we had in the 16 millimeter lab, you had all those tracks and then you had loops, birds, cars, and They were the same birds over and over. They got pep-pep, mm, mm, and, and, and the beauty of, uh, so anything else other than that, having to punch in manually, it's easy. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. becomes very easy.
0: Did you study any of those old films and get inspired in terms of the way that you sound, like any of the Walter Merch tracks?
1: Well, I think American Graffiti is um, sort of in the pantheon for me, and how he uses, uh, the, the most famous thing is when he uses the, and he uses it in almost every movie around that time, the train as a, as a score. And we use it in Nightmare Alley. It's, it's there in Nightmare Alley. That, that, you know, I remember, <laughs> I remember Bradley Cooper saying, "Another train, you know, uh, the hammers again." But I like, I like thematic elements that repeat themselves, because Stanton is heading for a train at the end of the movie. So I thought it, it should be calling him from the beginning, you know. And, uh, and the hammers on the wood, I I, I kept saying it's a crucifixion. So you use it. You, the thing is, you need to know that you're using it to, to say something.
0: The original Nightmare Alley, 1947. I, I think it was kind of unusual in film noir in that it seemed like it had a pretty big budget and there were film stars in it. What was it about that particular film that kind of called to you and made you say, like, I I want to make this film, I want to bring this back to audiences? It was not the film, it
1: was the novel. Was it? Yeah. I, I didn't want to even try to remake that film. I wanted to... Do a version of the novel. The original screenplay was 150 something pages, because we were that ambitious. And the first cut was three hours thirty. Uh, and little by little, the structural um, decisions in the editing room uh, led us to 220, because you know when it's too much. You know when it's it's just splendid to set up the world in the carnival and then see it enacted everything he learned in the carnival he uses in the city and it's very thrilling to do that but if you diluted uh, too much uh, then you the lessons are not clear you oh when did that happen when did he learn that why is he doing this so the novel was very ambitious we we we, we, we had adapted the novel properly would be six hours a miniseries and uh, so the decision the negotiation was between the the two hour plus structure and the richness of the novel. But no, the first film was exactly, the first film gave me the idea that there was a possibility to do a separate version because they had not covered a lot of the certain elements in the novel that I found compelling, including violence, including a sort of psychosexual current that was more, incestuous and weird and you know it, it, it was it was a lot more uh, uh, uh parricide in the in the and the novel is not he doesn't kill his father but there is a great episode with the father that gave me the idea that he should have
0: <laughs> can you talk a little bit about abstraction in sound um, and how you can because I feel it like, and you do this so well in Nightmare alley you go abstract with the sound, yeah. and what effect does that have on the audience when they're not getting the same information from the image that they're getting from the sound?
1: Well, one of the things we did, which is very brave, because normally I say, I came up with a neat little line years ago, and, I, <laughs> and I, this is the first time I admit that I invented it, I always say, like they say, no, I say, uh, silence is 10 tracks, you know? I always say, well, when you hear silence, you're really mixing 10 tracks. A little distant uh, car, a little uh, folly, a little, you know. But in this movie, we actually, one of the things that is the bravest to use is no tracks. And, or very few. And in the dreams, we went into an abstract space by subtracting rather than expanding. So we didn't go into a lot of, rather a silence, you know. And, And we learned to go a little more naked in certain moments to emphasize them. So abstraction not only means to take something that sounds real and make it expressive in a non-realistic way, but that is very expressive, but also means subtracting. For example, if somebody's screaming and and you only use, like you EQ it really low and you just muffle it and put it at the same level that another uh, frequency or wind, and it, it's almost like dialogue uh, becomes sound. That's what is interesting for me of uh, mixes like, uh, uh, Chris Nolan does where the dialogue is a rhythm he says I don't care what they're saying I like the rhythm they give to the scene but abstraction the way you go you can only go if it goes hand in hand with a camera if the visual does not support the audio abst- abstraction or doesn't ramp it in you cannot do it I, some people do it by going slow motion that's sort of the the phone app way of going into sound abstraction, but you can do it, a lot of people, I've done it after an explosion or a punch or this and that, or, or simply by uh, dolling in, into a face and then dolling into a scene, and then you you can start expanding to the sides.
0: I really like what you were talking about in terms of, you know, you have to be you have, you have to think about the image in order to create the space for the sound to do that. Yeah. Are you thinking when you're writing are you thinking about sound when you're yes. writing?
1: Yes. No, yeah, more importantly when I storyboard I think of sound but uh, there and there were some tricks we abandoned in the movie. There were moments that were a lot more uh, cinema than reality and and they they seemed to be out of place with the movie. So we dropped them. You know, there were some beautiful shots, beautiful shots, very complex, that felt like shots, or sound design that sounded like sound design. And then you have to dial it back and say that's not the. Every movie has a a sort of level. Like, for example, Shape of Water, the reality needs to exist over here. You know, there has to be a tank that looks like a sunshine with with pipes coming out of it because there's going to be a creature in it. But in that morality, there's not such a whimsy. So, all the reality of visual design needs to be gorgeous, but real. It cannot be whimsical. And the sound has to follow the same path.
0: Can you talk a little bit about how you use sound design and score together in the film and, and how you um, kind of. Because there were certain points where I wasn't sure what I was hearing
1: was sound design or was it music? Well, it's, it's really a tango, and only one can lead. You know, uh, they cannot both really share the same space. They have to say, look, I'm gonna lead. But there's no such a thing as a, 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 a negotiation. One has, and it, it is entirely emotional. Does this moment accept music or prefers silence? For example, I'll give you an example. The scene where Pete is reading Stan uh, for the first time, and they talk about his father. But we tried to compose something there and the rhythm was coming from Pete's dialogue. The way he delivered that dialogue was was a metronome. You didn't want to hear anything but him. So what we said is uh, let's put rain in the windows. So if you listen to the scene again, there's a beauty to, that's the only scene in the movie where you hear the rain on glass. All the heating, and that was the sequence. That was, that. that's it, that's all we need. Um, I think that we tried, we compose a piece, and then we put it in and we go, now I'm not listening to the sound design, I'm not listening to the silence, that is those 10 tracks, and I'm not listening to what he's saying, and the thing goes really fast, and I don't know what happened. So you subtract that. On the other hand, uh, you, uh, you say this is a moment of propulsion, for example, when Stanton sees the the cars, the police cars, and starts running, and you know score has to carry there because it's his hard jumping and him r- running. You know you need it. And then uh, then there are scenes that are a relay. You know what I'm saying? Like the, you start with sound and then you relay to, to music. And you have to be careful because it's the mid-levels that eat some instruments. Like, you know, if, if, uh, and the most difficult thing to mix is an action, a big action scene like Pacific Rim. Because you have to say, well, I have the full orchestra, but why? Why? Uh, the the mid-level of the metal against the metal, the big sounds are eating, eating away all that mid-level. I have only the low end, and I have only the really high, sharp sounds. So you negotiate with the score, and you say, this instrument goes through, this instrument goes through, the rest go away. You know? Because you're just you're just occupying the same real state than the than the sound. And I think that's that's the key to a mix. You say, uh, and and are you using it wisely? Is it really making the moment bigger or is it better like sometimes a punch and in a big action scene, you want it dry. And a, a punch, for example, a physical punch, you have, let's say, you have bone, you have the meat, uh, you have the the a low whoomp, you know, and you have to say which one leads. Even in a punch, even if you have five elements, you have to say this one is predominant, so it feels heavier or it feels fast and so forth. That punch when
0: Bruno yeah. it's oh my! Well, God. Well, you can ask
1: you can ask the mixers and the sound designer. We'll Nathan. definitely talk about that. Well, if- I, I tortured Nathan for that punch. Yeah. And I, I would come to the scene and say, Your favorite scene, Nathan? Because that punch, the guy says, I have five pounds of meat and bone. You know, and it has to sound like he is delivering five pounds of meat and bone. And um, and it was exactly that negotiation. Do we need more low end? Do we need a, a slap? Do we need a flap against fabric? I'll give you another example. We had. Um, there's nothing worse than bad folly, or, or folly that is wrong. And if you, uh, like I, we went and I said, I want the Lilith crystal, when she drinks, has to be crystal. You, you I, I hear when it's glass. What difference does it make? All the difference in the world. The scene where she drinks and then kisses him, I use the sound of the crystal, the little, the little, the, the tail end of that frequency, that's my score, that's my score, really. So uh, I remember uh, the dialogue with Nathan was like, that's not crystal that's glass, and it's bad glass. It's cheap glass. Oh, we'll go back, and they had to go back, and then I said, Lilith needs to sound, her heels need to sound like, like points of metal against marble. And if you don't use marble, it'll sound like uh, pavement, and she's not in the pavement. She's in her office It needs to be marble. And then we mix them low. When, once you have the ideal element, you don't showcase it, you go, let let, it, let, let us make it barely audible. Can you talk a little
0: bit about um, Dolby Atmos? What was your first experience with Dolby Atmos? Do you remember when the first time you heard it? Yeah,
1: was? I went to a demo. I went to a demo in the Chinese theater complex, and I heard it for the first time, and uh, I like the way you could locate it in, in, in certain areas of the theater, and I like the overhead, which came very, very, very handy on Pacific Rim, you know, And I think it's a spatial and you, for example, uh, in that movie, at that level, you could start a punch on the surrounds and then it landed in the center. When the robot punched, we could go, and and you're using especially to to say that fist is the size of this theater, you know. And I thought I was I, I thought it could it it was a, a complete sea change for me in mixing movies. It's not about how many times you use the the overhead channels as much as when you need them you have them and how you can uh, distribute the the dynamics of the sound on the surrounds. And I like to say, look, put it in the fr- in front left surround, but don't don't give me the rest of the of that side, uh, blah blah blah. And you can pinpoint the music and the and the even the, even the way you you make a scene either happening to them or to us in the theater. And that's a big difference, I think. With Atmos, you say we are entering the Funhouse. If you mix it to the front, he is entering the front So I think uh, these are adjectives. You qualify cinema through audio and visuals. And uh, to quote Mark Twain, the difference between the right word and the near right word is the difference between the light bulb and the lightning. You know? And there's no such a thing as, oh, it'll do with sound. You have to be as strict as you are with images.
0: Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, you talked a little bit about the music. How does Dolby Atmos has it changed the way you you present the music in the film?
1: Yeah. Uh, music and sound effects are like a 40-year-old marriage. They don't want to be in the right in the same room if they don't uh, <laughs> if they're not having a good time. You know, if they're not in the right mood and 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 music if you can if you can exile uh what you don't need or what and and then What you are left with, and that's why I like uh, music to be approached with a lot of uh, stems, because I can say, look, the more you give me, if you give me just everything in four or five stems, you're you're destroying the experience. I can put, uh, uh, for example, uh, a percussive element on the surrounds, you know, because it's rhythm, you know or uh, I, I find that when you put a percussive element completely in the front, it's eating a lot of your mid ground and a lot of your low end and a lot of those things then don't work. So the more you give me, uh, f- how would I say coordinates on the sound on the surround. It's not the same to have two two channels on the sides than to have four. And it's not the same thing to have and, you know as mu- as many of those specific real estate areas you give me the better and more immersive it will be
0: that's interesting did you have any other sort of rules for the sound
1: no we tried to do we tried to use it creatively I'll tell you another mix it was it, that this came in the mix but it was interesting we know Stanton Carlisle has the his father's watch and we know it's important to him and so he takes it off and he brings it close to the lens and you hear t- and he takes it away. They take it away, and the ticking stays. Tick, tick, tick. So it's never gonna go away, no matter if it's on him or not. His father's watch will always be on him. And I, I like that. I like that it's a storytelling point.
0: Yeah, I appreciate what you were saying about the use of silence, and well, and especially ten tracks of silence. Uh, I made a note to myself to ask you about just the sound design of Doctor Ritter's office. It's yeah. it's so. It's so deceptive because it doesn't necessarily feel like there's a lot going on in that space from the soundtrack. Start, and also, you know, uh, uh, Ezra Grendel's house, two amazing locations. Can you talk about your approach to the sound design of those two spaces?
1: Yeah, we we tried to codify. Well, we codified the the fact that in the city, every door that opens and closes sounds like a vacuum in space. And they go, you know, I'm so it felt suffocating that we did all throughout the city uh, <clears throat> then we said what distinguishes one place from the other and for example in the hotel room you hear a distant church ding, ding, the bells of a distant church and when he's talking about time i'll pick you up at seven you hear the church hitting five i think it was you know and on ezra grindles the garden is mostly wind but we did several levels of wind we had the. And then we have the punctual, the whistling one. And then what we did in Lilith's office is uh, we took some of the whistling wind that we would use for Molly, dressed as Dory. And we said, it's the sound of sort of guilt. And we put it on Lilith's office and we had the window at night, I'm talking at night, Go, you know, you, you feel the resistance of the glass to the wind, and that's him going into his memories. That's the score. It's him going. My, uh, well, she says, "Was it, was she beautiful, your mother?" You know, she was to me. You know, and you know we tried to approach the jongian approach to sound design, yeah. and then uh, so on and so forth. Each space had, for example, Grindel. You have a you have one low frequency in the factory, you know, and then when we enter his room and it goes, it goes, it complete silence in that room, and uh, the machine, the the light detector was really hard to pin, because if you make it too active, it becomes a toy. We tried a lot of tricks that had worked in the past, and they didn't work here. So we sound designed it really carefully, and. Finding something like the light, the green for right and red for wrong. We tried, eh. then we tried a relay, then we tried, and then we said, Bleh. leave it in silence, because everything sounded like a they were playing Jeopardy.
0: So Dolby Atmos and Dolby Vision obviously come together in the experience of Dolby Cinema, um, which uh, you know obviously we 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 think is that the the highest form of the the cinema experience how is it important for you for audiences to see nightmare alley in a cinema
1: dolby vision and dolby sound are the highest form of presentation on a movie no doubt for me available right now and they they solve problems that are spatial and immersive in a way that no other tool does so if you if you can imagine uh, looking at a painting as a postcard or seeing it on for real in the space and where you can look at the brush strokes you can look at the thickness of the paint that's the equivalent of uh, the regular cinematic experience and Dolby cinema is is the difference of being in front of a painting or in front of a postcard You
0: have an incredible cast of really just extraordinary actors. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to casting the film and how you brought this particular team together to uh, to tell the story?
1: Well, we wrote a lot of the parts for the actors that are on the screen. And we knew, uh, Kim Morgan and I knew that Kate uh, Blanchett was born to play Lilith Rider We knew it not only by the things she had done, but by the things she had not done. And, uh, we thought uh that Willem Dafoe would be the perfect limb because he is funny and at the same effortlessly menacing and so on and so forth. We did most of the writing for the ideal cast, and then it's a matter of uh, convincing uh them that uh that the the endeavor uh is gonna be a hum, uh, sort of a human story and not just a dark uh dystopian or a, a dark and pessimistic fable that that, that their characters are going to be able to render different sides of humanity and they understood that so Pete for example is heartbreakingly uh, one type of father Clem is another type of father it's more like a, like the the guy that is cruel enough uh, to teach uh, what he believes the son needs to learn about how tough the world is. And then you have Grendel. Uh, and 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 it, he renders a color of um, the sort of ennui that comes with excess. You know, how uh, it is uh, anesthetizing almost of humanity. And each of them understood that a color was needed to portray Stan's entire experience. I think the novel was written by William Lindsay Gresham with a kaleidoscope of uh, characters that are really sides of himself. He, I think Nightmare Ali is a theater of the mind. I think that every character there exists or existed in William Lindsay Gresham's brain. And, and they battled the way the characters battle in the movie. And unfortunately, uh, the darkest side won.
0: The production design in the film is extraordinary. Can you talk about working with uh, Tamara Deverell um, on developing the look of the film? And the, 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 the sets are just astonishing.
1: One of the functions visually of the director is to, to make sure that uh, nobody, that there are no departments that are independent in the visual realization of the film, meaning you, you create a series of parameters that are narrative. And that can be broken into color, light, shape, form, you know, and that those disciplines are understood by all those departments. Meaning, when you say what a what a great cinematography, you're saying what a great production design. When you say what a great production design, you're saying what a great wardrobe, and when you're saying what a great image, you're saying what a great set decorating, and that's when the director does the job of the director, which is to make sure that these efforts are symphonic and to story and to character. So, one of the mandates I give is, we're not creating eye candy, we're creating eye protein. And it should be nutritious. It should tell you something about the character. It should immerse you on a motif. It should give you, um, for example, when you want to introduce a character like Grindel, you introduce him through a factory that is inhumanly big, cold, precise, Uh, aloof and almost aggressive, and then he's sitting down pleasantly in a little chair. And he's very agreeable. He says, give me your jacket. And he falls, thank you for coming to see me. He can be that because the set is already doing some of the heavy lifting. So when I talk to Tamara, I talk to Tamara, Dan, Shane, Louis, and Wardrobe, I talk to all of them. And I make sure they understand what we're trying to do. So Lilith has to be almost contained by her clothes. And uh, her power can be felt in her office. It's an arrogant office, slightly menacing, and everything is hidden. There are secret compartments for everything, you know? Hidden microphones, a hidden recorder behind panelings that look like uh, psychological tests, you know? And so everything is to story. The carnival. The number one decision why we said tomorrow we're going to be building it outside is because we wanted to react to the wind and the and the wetness and the the flapping of the tent, and these are decisions that don't come from one department and not the other. For example, Dan Lauschen, uh when we were looking at the at the tarps in the carnival, we noticed that they reacted when a tarp was dry. It didn't let the light through that much, and when you wet it, it became translucent, which was crazy for us. But it made that moment, that discovery, made a, a big difference. And uh, uh, then, for example, uh, when you decide the source of lighting is going to be one source, we're going to use the windows to light the whole scene. We're not going to, or we're going to lift the ceiling and light from above. Well, if Dan and I decide that on the day, uh, that would be completely a disaster. But if you decided seven months before on a white foam maquette, uh, you are making everything go into one direction. If you have uh, Molly, for example, in the city, is the only person, the only person dressed in red. You have hundreds of people in the exterior and in the station, not a single red handkerchief. So you spot her in the composition right away, you know? That is great cinematography, great production design and great wardrobe and great set deck all coming together to fulfill the narrative thing that the director is reading on the page or, re- or co-wrote on the page. So n- n- to me, that's almost impossible to 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 discuss without discussing in terms of story.
0: That's a great answer. Um, I think I just have one question left, which is with all of the tumult that's going on in our, in our industry, all the changes that are going on, when, uh, you know, a young person comes to you for advice, on they want to they be the next Guillermo del Toro, they want to make films, what, do you, what advice do you give
1: them? What do you tell them? When they want to be a director, I, 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 my advice is simple, look, I don't know if you can be a good director or a bad director, but if you want to be a director, just direct. You know, if somebody has permission to direct in an era where each cell phone has a camera, that's that, that's a big mistake. You, if you're gonna direct, you can you have an iPhone? Good, go direct. You know, and and uh, th- there are there are perfectly uh, great, perfectly capable uh, sort of uh, apps and little technology gags that you can get on a very low budget. And then the only thing that makes a difference, because I think we live in a world where everybody said, But what do I, what do, I do? And they can get lost uh, in the industry. If you pay attention to the industry, you'll get lost in the industry. If you pay attention to what people want, you will get lost because you will follow uh, a shadow. But if you say, all I have is myself and the way I see the world, whether they, anyone will agree or not, just say, present yourself in front of the crowd and dance like a madman. (laughs) It's it's that shameful. I always remember in The Big Lebowski, there is this uh, guy that plays this abstract dance uh, with a very tight-fitting pink leotard. That's directing. (laughs) Imagine me in that pink leotard and I come out every moment and I go, and and you, either the audience applauds or they tried to kill you. But at least you had a strong vision. But hey, that's your leotard. <laughs> You're wearing it any way you want.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you again to Guillermo del Toro, who was gracious enough to sit down for that one-on-one conversation, and to our friends at Searchlight Pictures for putting it all together. If you like this episode, I hope that you'll come back in a couple of days when we post part two, which is an in-depth conversation with the sound team behind Nightmare Alley about how they accomplished the track for this really amazing film. If you're not subscribed to us already, you should be, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, thanks again for joining us. This has been Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sunny Chen. Thank you for listening.